0: That's what's at stake. It's making sure that my son doesn't have to go through the same struggles that I went through. It doesn't have to go through working 80 hours a week and missing out on his children's life to make sure that he can somehow secure an opportunity just to have a middle-class life, but still live paycheck to paycheck.
1: Well, we're not asking anymore. We got sick of putting our hand up and asking and asking, and now all these ass are balling up into a little fist and we're saying no more. I mean, how do you have someone with, you know, 20, 30, $40 million compensation trying to tell you know me or one of my union brothers or sisters working right next to me that you know what the $18 an hour they're making is enough
2: Hello, my name is Teddy Ostro. Welcome to The Upsurge, a podcast about the future of the American labor movement. This podcast previously focused on the unprecedented labor fight this year at UPS. But now we've shifted our focus to the renewed militancy of the United Autoworkers, the legendary union that in a week's time may launch a strike of 150,000 of its members at the big three automakers. That's Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, which was previously previously Chrysler. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at indiestimes.com and therealnews.com, where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. And a quick reminder, this is a listener supported podcast, so please if you want to keep it going, head on over to patreon.com/upsurgepod and become a monthly contributor today. You can find a link in the description. We cannot do this without you. On to the show. Um, These companies have made a quarter of a trillion dollars in the last decade. The thing that they, they drive for is corporate greed. That's what this is all about. If you're an Upsurge listener, you may remember that voice. That's Sean Fain, the new militant president of the United Auto Workers Union. When 26 billionaires have as much wealth as half of humanity in this world, 26 people have as much wealth as half of humanity We have to turn this system upside down. That does not work for people, period. So we're gonna have- That's him talking to me at a July 15th rally in Long Island for the UPS Teamsters, who in a little over a month would go on to ratify a contract that reaped significant concessions from the package giant. Fain was there in solidarity, but his own union had just started high-stakes negotiations of their own. That is, for the contract that covers nearly 150,000 UAW members at the Big Three automakers nationwide, which expires on September 14th. And almost immediately, it became clear that the corporations didn't want to play ball.
1: With their proposal, I'm going to file it in its proper place
2: because that's where it belongs, the trash, because that's what it is. So moving on. You can't see it, but that was a Facebook Live clip of Fane throwing the contract proposals by Stellantis, which were riddled with concessions to the company into the trash can. He did the same with Ford's proposals just a couple weeks later. And just last week, the union filed unfair labor practice charges against Stellantis and GM for failing to bargain in good faith. See, the big three automakers, as Fain told me, made a quarter trillion dollars over the past decade. Yes, a trillion with a T. That means they've more than recovered from the bottoms they hit during the Great Recession when the union acquiesced to several rounds of concessions to prop up the companies. So with a more militant union leadership at its helm, the UAW is demanding more from the profit-flush Big Three than they have in a long time. That includes wage increases of over 40% in line with the increases the company executives saw over the past four years. A big one, the elimination of wage and benefit tiers, much like the Teamsters demanded and won at UPS. And among several other important demands, they're also looking to reinstate defined benefit pensions, retiree medical benefits, and cost of living wage increases that go up as inflation does. All of those are benefits that UAW members used to have, but they've been taken away over the past 15 years. So in the past couple weeks, UAW members hit the ballot box and authorized the union to call a strike. By 97%, and the leadership has indicated that they may be willing to strike all three companies at once if their demands aren't met. We're going to get it done. we get it done by any
1: means necessary.
2: That means 150,000 auto workers may be heading the picket line as soon as next week. September 14th is the strike deadline. Now. This is a big deal. With non-union electric vehicle and battery manufacturing on the rise in the United States, this feels like a make-or-break moment for the union. How will the union expand its membership, improve working people's lives, if its existing members are on the back foot? We'll unpack more context in future shows, but in this episode, we're focused on how during this round of negotiations, the UAW is doing something it hasn't done in a very long time a contract campaign. We've got 25 days to the deadline. So I got a question for you. Are you going to Wobble? For this episode, I spoke at length with two UAW activists. Jesse Kelly and Luigi Jokai about the workers' demands and how union leaders and rank and file are organizing the membership to unite around them. But in preparation for this interview, I spoke to workers around the country, in Kansas City, Chicago, Detroit, Louisville, and Buffalo. Some of them even sent me audio from local actions, but all of them told me the same thing. They've never seen anything like this at their union. Here's Paul Davidson, a local 212 union steward at Stellantis, who attended a large campaign rally in Metro Detroit. The unity is
1: um, breathtaking. Yeah. We need to get this back going. It's good to see unions are getting back strong again and doing what's necessary by showing up.
2: Inspired by the Teamsters, auto workers even set up practice pickets in several states. And lots of workers are getting involved in the union for the first time. In Chicago, Ford Assembly worker Danny Morales explained, I was basically motivated to currently get involved with the union. I'm a member of the strike committee here at the local 551. I
0: was inspired by the Teamsters with the way they were able to band together and fight and win themselves a better contract. So I'm, I'm looking for that
2: exact same fight with my brothers and sisters to get what we deserve. To discuss all this and more, I was lucky enough to speak with two UAW activists in Metro Detroit who have been putting in the work to prepare their union family to strike if they have to. Luigi Jokai is the newly elected vice president of UAW Local 51. Before then, he was an assembly worker at Stellantis since 2010. Jesse Kelly is a skilled trades mold maker at General Motors and alternate committee person at UAW Local 160, which is kind of like a shop steward for those unfamiliar with the lingo. Jesse, who is a member of the Unite All Workers for Democracy Caucus, was actually on strike for 40 days in 2019 with 40,000 of her GM co-workers. An action, she explained, didn't really win much for the union. This time, however, could be different. We cover a lot of ground in this interview. And if you want more context before hopping in, I do encourage you to go listen to episode five of The Upsurge and our July 13th bonus episode with UAW leaders Brandon Mancia and Dan Vicente. Jesse Kelly and Luigi Jokai, welcome to The Upsurge.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you so much for using this platform to draw attention to our fight.
2: To start, can you guys just briefly introduce yourselves, tell us your story, at your automaker and the union, you know, what positions have you held, where, and in which local unions?
0: So I started 14 years ago at the Warren Tech Center. I started as a temporary on-call housekeeper with a unit called Airmark, which is a third party unit. I worked my way up through different sectors of the UAW. I ended up being the committee person for Airmark, and then I sat as a trustee on the executive board for Local 160. Inside of Airmark, I was a housekeeper, and then I was an industrial painter, and then I was maintenance, and then I took a temporary position inside of General Motors. I worked for both Airmark and General Motors for three years before I finally accepted a full-time position at General Motors as an apprentice. And now I am a skilled trades mold maker inside of the plaster shop.
1: And Luigi? I started in 2010 as a SVR, which stands for Summer Vacation Replacement. So when we first got hired in and got the email that, hey, you're going to work for Chrysler, it was as a summer summertime basically after 119 days. You were let go. You were just a summer replacement. And once we got there, they actually told us after our 119 days, we'd be full time. I kind of started off like any other regular worker would, just kind of came in, did my job, went home, didn't didn't care too much. To get involved with like union and stuff, I was like, ah, you know, I'm kind of one of the guys that just does his job every day. I don't need my union. And my my favorite phrase to tell people is you never think you're going to need your union until you need your union. And um, it was actually, I didn't actually need them. Someone else did. And I had brought awareness to a situation that was going on, and really saw what the power of like collective bargaining and having a union can do. Because you know, being a non-union person my whole life previous to that, even though my grandfather had uh, had worked at Chrysler for 30-some odd years, it was so different than the non-union shops. You know, you could call your steward; they could come correct the action. It wasn't just arbitrarily you go do this because I told you so. It was like, no, there's a contract. You're going to uphold it. You're going to abide by it. And if you don't, there's a grievance that's going to be written. And that's kind of what sparked me wanting to get involved a little bit. So I ran for the executive board at Local 7, which is Jefferson North Assembly Plant, affectionately called JNAP. And at the time we were building the Jeep Grand Cherokee and the Dodge Durango. After winning a term on the executive board, I transferred over to the Mack Assembly Plant and they were the first new plant built in Detroit in probably 30 some odd years. And they were going to be doing the Grand Cherokee, the new model after the... Peugeot and Fiat merger, which became Stellantis, but I will probably not call it that the rest of the podcast. It's still Chrysler. Once I got there, I was appointed as the backup committee person because we had some COVID related issues that had hit at the time when COVID was just just about to start ravaging the whole country and shut the whole place down. And I spoke up real loud about what was going on. And the committee person at the time was like, hey, this is a kindred spirit right here. A guy who's going to speak out and not be afraid you know, to put it all on the line. I was the backup committee person, was acting shop steward, and then I ran for vice president, and I am the uh, newly elected vice president of my local. So, real excited about that.
2: Moving on, you know, what we're dealing with here and what I want to talk to you guys about is something we haven't seen from the United Auto Workers in a really long time. You know, certainly in my lifetime and decades, maybe you guys too. And that's a contract campaign. We saw this quite triumphantly. At the Teamsters Union at UPS this year, we covered that very heavily on this show. And when this posts, we'll roughly be a week out from the September 14th contract expiration and strike deadline at the Big Three Automakers. Can you guys unpack for me What you're doing right now, I know you guys are really hard at work, busy organizing across locals within your region, but also more broadly across the union. You know, you're organizing the rank and file for a contract campaign. And as I've been told, you know, the UAW has a culture of abiding by a strike. You guys will strike if you're called for one. But not necessarily this grassroots organizing culture, which it seems that you guys are trying to cultivate that right now. So maybe maybe in, in explaining this contract campaign, maybe you can compare this to what you've seen in prior contracts too.
0: Okay, so... It's such an intricate question. Um, So I want to make sure to do it justice because you're absolutely correct. We have never, ever seen a contract campaign before. I grew up, I'm a third generation UAW member. My mom was extremely involved, especially at my local local 160. So I walked my first picket line at, at five years old. I seen the newspaper strike. So it was kind of ingrained in me. But I remember being a member of General Motors in 2019 when a strike was called. And I was bestowed with the responsibility of saying, get everything together the week prior to um, the contract deadline in case we go out on strike, but we're not going to go on strike. So it's going to be fine, right? Like just get together everything that you can, just as an in case so we can show the international union that we, you know, we're checking the boxes and everything's okay. I go, okay. I've never been on a strike myself. So I said, okay, I I do some rough um, scheduling. I do some rough like Google docking, whatever it may be. And I remember even like calling up the officials saying like, should there be a strike come Sunday? Like, we're going to need you to do this. And they laughed, right? They're like, okay, like, we'll see you at work on Monday. Like, all right. And no one believed it. And then all of a sudden, boom, my president, my chairman go down, and they get told we're going on a national strike. Every single plant is going out all 40,000 members, like we're going on this strike. And I'm the chair of communications at my local. So I remember telling people through the text messaging system, a national strike was called. Please report at the hall at this time. Tomorrow we'll discuss what we're going to do. And people were just in shock. And then there wasn't any communication coming down either. So we called a national strike. There was no plan. There was no communication. Nobody knew what they were striking on. And it's hard to like build that solidarity and create that momentum and keep everybody going, especially for what ended up being a 40 day strike when you're not even sure what you're striking for. So the idea that this time around we have a members demand list and we know exactly what we're fighting for and we have the ability to set our membership up and educate them on the things that we're fighting for prior to the expiration of the deadline. It's so different in such a positive way. And it really is building like this sense of like grassroots efforts and solidarity that I've never seen before inside of the UAW. I have seen it at the, the Detroit newspaper. I have seen it in UPS, but I've never seen it at the UAW and I think they're ready for it. I think it's a very positive change. All of my members are telling me like, this is crazy to know exactly the things that we're asking for prior to the expiration.
2: Right. Thank you so much for setting that up like that. And maybe Luigi, what, what is that translating to in terms of actions in the union? What what are the kinds of things you guys are doing to organize the workers, get them ready?
1: Yes. I mean, piggybacking a little bit off of Jesse there, we've never seen this kind of mobilization, this kind of action, and this kind of support from the top down, whereas previously it was kind of from the bottom up, right? We got our top international president, right? The, the, the leader, so to speak, of the entire UAW talking to us every single week like we are right now. I mean, you didn't get that that kind of access then before. He's doing Zooms. He's doing Facebook Lives. I know for our Vice President, Richie Boyer, who's the lead for the Chrysler division, is doing a weekly update on, hey, here's what's going on. I mean, I've never felt this kind of enthusiasm in the UAW. It's Chrysler, GM, Ford, white, black, man, woman, doesn't matter. Immigrant, Non-immigrant, like it's all walks of life, and we all have this like common brotherhood, sisterhood, and and just this unity of hey, we're gonna get what we should have never, ever, ever lost, and it has a feel honestly like like the '60s, like everything comes full circle, right? Well, we're not asking anymore. We got sick of putting our hand up and asking and asking, and now all these asses are balling up into a little fist, and we're saying no more. I mean, how how do you how do you have someone with you know $40 forty million dollar compensation? Trying to tell, you know, me or one of my union brothers or sisters working right next to me that, you know, what the $18 an hour they're making is enough. And maybe it was 30 years ago, you know, but the, the cost of uh milk, since, since that's what everyone always talks about, the cost of milk has gone up. The price of everything has gone up. The price of their vehicles continue to go up, but my wages remain stagnant. And people are fed up now. We're not just taking it as Okay, no problem. We'll wait another contract. We'll wait. We, we, we kept hearing that in our career. How many times did we hear that? Oh, you guys will get there eventually. Don't worry. You won't get in this one, but you get in the next one. And you'll get it in the next one. We were in a position where we were hurting, right? The company was hurting. And who did they ask to take, to take the blow for them? The worker, right? They didn't ask the CEO. They didn't ask the stockholder. They asked the American taxpayer and the American auto worker. Yo, take this hit for us and we'll make you guys hold. We'll, we'll do the right thing. And they didn't. And they didn't. And now we're kind of like, yo, man, 12, 13 years in, we're going to get everything back that we never should have lost. And we're not actually asking for a hell of a lot more. We're just asking to be made back even.
2: And just so people understand what you're talking about there, the, the big three automakers, I believe all three beginning in tw- 2007, there was sort of this concession that created tears in the contract that new workers would not receive pensions and they would not receive retiree Healthcare. And this was worsened over time, especially as then Chrysler and GM. Filed for bankruptcy, were bailed out. Ford narrowly avoided it through a loan that it had secured earlier, just concession after concession to sort of prop up these companies that had basically gone down under. So was, as you said, the taxpayer, but also the workers who really had to take the fall. But you know, you were talking about Luigi, about all all this solidarity that you're seeing, and and that is being built, right? You guys are are putting that together. You guys are doing the organizing work to make that happen for this contract campaign. So I, w- I want to hear, you know, th- about the rallies that have been going on over the past couple of weeks, the, the practice pickets, you know, 10 minute meetings. What are the ways that you guys are actually on the shop floor in the union hall, getting people to get on the same page for the first time in, in a very long time?
0: So, um, we seen UPS and we seen the practice pickets and I had never seen anything like that. I had seen like rallies before I had seen contract campaigns, but I had never seen like actual physical signs of saying like just practicing for a just contract. And I remember like being at my house and just scrolling through Facebook and a picture came up of a UPS driver and he was holding a sign that said just practicing for a just contract. And I was like, whoa. This is incredible. This is like honestly the cutest thing that I have ever seen and I like cried, right? Like I cried real tears and I was like this is so lame, but I was like that is adorable. Um we need to do that. Like we need to do that. We need to build solidarity. I remember in 2019 some of my members had never been on a strike line. So you're asking them to like Luigi said in <laughs> earlier to play in the Super Bowl when they never even went through the tryouts, right? You're like boom. Boom strike. Go out there, win us a good contract when you've never even tried this out before, or like flexing your muscles before you even went to the gym. So when they were doing that, I was like, wow, what a a way to bring solidarity and bring recognition and bring you know, just an understanding of this is what we're going to do eventually if we have to. And not only that, you're showing the company that you're willing to do it and that you're willing to do it on your own time. And I'll work a 10 hour shift or I'll work a 12 hour shift. And I'll still go out there with my brothers and sisters because that's how important it is to me. And I think that that's very eye opening to everybody. And it was just thrilling to see. And so right when I seen it. And I was like, we have to do this. We have to adopt this method. This is fantastic. So for me, I I know that we wanted to do that, and then my particular uh, event ended up turning into a rally, which was phenomenal. We had a rally at Region One, and I think like
1: that was the first rally we have seen like that ever.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe a thousand people. I think it was a thousand. Yeah. It might have been over. Was there was a lot of people. <laughs> we walked out there together, and it was just packed. I mean, people were under trees and they were on the hill, and I was like whoa, like they're ready, right? And that's such like an amazing thing and an amazing feeling. And even to just like look out and see everybody in their bed on a Sunday and during like a Woodward Dream Cruise weekend where they could be out cruising their car and instead they're there at a rally, it was just incredible. And the day prior, I did um, an educational class at my hall for preparing my members for a strike and 300 people had shown up to that. And like even one of my own committee men were like, Don't do it that day. You're going to get six people tops. And I remember we walked into the hall and they were like, whoa, there's like 300, 400 members here because they just want to hear. They just want to hear about what's going to happen. They want to hear what we're going to fight for. They want to hear why they think, why we think that we can win this fight. And so it was just like having those two days in a row showed me that like our membership is ready. And like Sean Fain said, they're fed up, right? I knew I was fed up a long time ago, but like, it's such like a I don't know it's just this incredible realization when you realize everybody is just as mad as you are and they're ready to fight for it and it it builds something inside of you where you're like i'm not alone on the ship we're all ready for a different standard of living and we're all ready for a different life inside of america and i mean if that's not solidarity i don't know what is and if the union isn't collective action it's nothing else right that's what the whole premise of a union is is just collective action And they're ready to join in collective action and win this. So it's incredible.
2: And I think that was really evident not only at the rallies we saw, which I believe were in Chicago, Metro Detroit, Louisville, as well, but in the practice pickets. And I know Luigi, you led a practice picket in Detroit with your local. Maybe it was involving more locals than just uh, yours. Can you talk a little bit about that? What what was that like? What when talking to members, how did they feel? Doing it,
1: so I forgot exactly how we came up with the idea, but it definitely it definitely came from the UPS practice picket. I mean, that's where that's where we first saw it, right? And I was like, oh my god, this is genius! It's and like just had said earlier, I'm like, we're scrimmaging before the big game because we have so many members that have never been on strike. So you know, it's always like, well, what do you do during a strike? Some people are like, oh, you just walk around in the line. It's real easy. There's nothing to it. Well, I can tell you secondhand, right? She can tell you firsthand what it's like. From day one to week one to week three to the rain, to worrying about the snow, to being cold as hell at night. I know secondhand what it was like seeing the enthusiasm and, and, and the stuff happen on the first days and, and being like, wow, I didn't realize that would happen. Oh, man, I thought the cops would be on our side because they're union too. And instead, they're over there harassing you know, the people for exercising their freedom to, to, to picket, to strike, to speak. And it was just like, wow, man, like I'm glad I'm here to see this boots on the ground at ground level so I know what to expect if we're up next. But with the practice pickets, what UPS did was awesome. I think it was great. And they they got a really, really good contract without having to go through a strike, right? So when I brought this to my local and to my membership about a practice picket, people were just so on board, right? And you had a lot of people that weren't, you know, some of the, the older folks, oh, you know, we don't need to do that. And it's not going to be a kind of same thing like Jesse ran into in 19, all of a sudden, bam, strike. What do we do? So I didn't want that to happen. You know, having spoke to her about her experience, I wanted it to be better. Um, so I got with some of the some of the other mouthpieces in the in the plant, some in leadership positions, some not. And um, this thing turned into something bigger than I could have imagined. I mean, it started off as like a regular local practice picket rally, and at the end of the day, we had the international president over there and supporters from multiple locals, the neighborhood. When they saw us marching, was honking their horns and waving at us and cheering us on. It made every single news station, locally, nationally. I mean, the Wall Street Journal's writing about it, CBS News, Fox. I mean, it hit everywhere, and I think it probably was playing in France, where our CEO's sitting in his chateau, and I'm sure it was hitting. <laughs> I'm sure it was hitting at the mansion, second mansion that our COO had in Mexico. That hey, baby. East side of Detroit, the heart of Motor City is uh, is alive and well, and we're ready.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for going through that. I mean, it seems like you guys, and you guys are not only doing practice pickets. Like you said, it's rallies, even down to like the small stuff, right? And it, not every local is necessarily on board with doing some of these bigger actions, but rank and filers are taking it upon themselves to before a shift or on a break, you know, taking 10 minutes to speak to coworkers, just, you know, 10 people, 15 people, 30 people about the demands. As as I've read in places like Labor Notes, and I've spoken with Chris Budnick down in Kentucky, it really just seems like people are getting involved in a way that just hasn't been seen in a very long time. I want to turn to the issues. You guys have rattled off a couple already, but let's turn to the issues and to the stakes of this fight for you guys, for auto workers and and not only UAW members. So first, can you can you guys break down what are the union's major demands and really just help listeners uh, understand what the stakes are for workers' lives and, and their well being to solve these issues to overcome the concessions of the past uh, decade or more?
0: Okay, yeah. So let's talk about it. What's at stake is everything. Oh. I mean, not to be so like dramatic, but what's at stake is literally everything. So I can speak for me. I graduated high school in 2008. I immediately entered a workforce. My mom, although a union member, had three daughters and as a single mom could not afford to send us to college. So I entered the workforce as NAFTA was like in full force inside of the Metro Detroit area. So there was zero opportunity for me. I just knew I needed to have a job. So I did whatever I could to secure a job. And as I told you earlier in the introduction, I went through so many different ostracized departments inside of the auto industry, because even though my mom at 17 could go and join General Motors and make a good middle-class living as being a groundskeeper, that wasn't an option for me. And it wasn't an option for my siblings. So for me, it looked a lot like a third-party housekeeper making $11 an hour and being a temp. and being an on-call in all of these little ostracized pockets that that are just exploited workers to make the corporations more and more money. And so that's what's at stake. It's making sure that my son doesn't have to go through the same struggles that I went through. It doesn't have to go through working 80 hours a week and missing out on his children's life to make sure that he can somehow secure an opportunity just to have a middle-class life, but still live paycheck to paycheck. I mean, I'm a lot luckier than most people in my generation and I still live paycheck to paycheck even though I am doing better than everybody else and that's a really sad reality of where the generation that we're living in and the the challenges that this generation faces so that's why I'm so dramatic when I say what's at stake it's everything like I said at the rally like for my son's generation it's not about like protecting the american dream or fighting for the american dream it's literally like resuscitating it from the dead And it's up to us to make sure that that's a reality for the next generations, that they have the ability to have opportunity, that they have the ability to have a hobby, that they have the ability to do more in life than just wake up and work from the moment they're awake until the moment it's time for them to sleep. And um, I don't want to see that for him. And I don't want to see that for any of our children or any of our future generations. And I don't want to see that for us. So this fight really is about that, and it's about the middle class as a whole. Because if we don't win now, we're we're going to continue to lose, and we're going to continue to have a race to the bottom. And so that is how big this fight really is. So we'll talk a little bit about the members' demands. And so I'll take some, and I think, Luigi, you can take some. So we'll start with eliminate tears on wages and benefits. This is a big deal. They found a way to make us be pitted against ourselves The fact that you can do the same exact job next to somebody and make half of the amount of money and a quarter of the benefits, it's just not okay. It's just not what's right. There's no loyalty in that. And we're loyal to these companies. Every single day, we're loyal to these companies. We drive their products. We show up to work. We do the best that we can. We risk our health and we risk our time. And we're loyal to them. And they're saying that you're not even worth half what the person next to you is worth. And we're not gonna give you benefits. And I think that in society, we get really caught up in how much somebody makes and their hourly rate. And we're fighting for so much more than that. When I was a temp, I made half as much, and my health insurance was only 25% as good as theirs. And that's a problem because just because you're a temp does not mean that you're not risking your health just as much as the person next to you. I was breathing in the same toxic chemicals. I was doing the same backbreaking work, but I wasn't allowed to have the same health insurance. And that's and that's a huge problem. So that's one of our top ones. Substantial wage increases. This is for anybody in the working class period. Inflation has rapidly grown and we need to Be on par with that. Our standard of living, like I said, went down 13% since our last agreement. We can't afford the same lifestyle that we could afford four years ago. So we deserve the same wage increases that we know our CEOs are giving themselves. Restore COLA. So COLA, another acronym, the cost of living adjustment. So that's just that our wages are protected from inflation. So there's a quick calculation that can be done every three months, like we've seen inside of John Deere, that says this is how much more you need to make to just have the same standard of living that you had three months ago. And that's all we're asking for, is our wages to be protected against inflation, to find benefit pensions for all workers, and reestablish retiree medical benefits. And this is where I get into reciprocated loyalty. We're very, very loyal to these companies, and we give our whole lives to them. And I mean, I've genuinely given my whole life to General Motors. I missed out on three years of my son's life giving my life to General Motors while I was a temporary employee. And all we're asking for in return is that when it is time for us to be done being loyal to them, that they're loyal to us and that we can retire and we can have health insurance when we retire. And we're risking our health for them for 30, 40, 50 years, however long we stay in these plans. And we just want to make sure that after all of that time and all the things we were exposed to and all of the backbreaking work, that we still have health insurance when we retire. I mean, it's not that big of an ask. It's just reciprocated loyalty.
2: Just to pause there for a second, just on the retiree, uh, medical benefits, the the pension, these, uh, just to emphasize, these were offered to workers who began their work at these auto companies before 2007 and they were taken away. This is part of the many many tears that we've seen at these companies that are pitting workers against each other. You know, these these issues I also think speak to something you alluded to, Jesse, which is that the, these jobs, some of them harm your body. You know, it, it leaves life altering injury or or carpal tunnel or maybe we could just linger on that for a bit and and get to some of the other demands as well but can you just speak to both of you what this job is like
1: in the plant so i got seven nice holes in my arm from a workplace injury and thankfully because i had a union steward and a union safety rep it was documented as a workplace injury because initially they did not want to say it happened at work even though there were witnesses there, there was safety protocol in place. This rack was supposed to have been fixed. It was a documented problem rack. They just didn't want to have the comp claim against the plant. And had it been a non-union workshop, a lot of things could have happened. And trust me, they try like hell and, and unfortunately sometimes get away with it, even in union shops. But that injury happened to me Oh, going on a little over four years. Before that, I was a professional boxer and mixed martial artist so you know that training is rigorous you put your body through hell and i never had surgery before in my entire life you know broken nose a couple scratches maybe some stitches here and there but i never actually had to have complete reconstructive surgery on a, on a body part and that's what happened you know just from somebody not following the protocol that they were supposed to do at work and i wasn't able to um to hold my daughter for the first 2 weeks of her life in in this right arm i had a uh, one and a half year old at the time. So my kids are about 13 months apart. So I was grabbing the one year old in one arm, and you know, daughter's crying. I can't get her out of the bathroom. I got to set him down, and then he's crying. Got to pick her up, put her in one arm. And it wasn't my fault. It was the company's fault. They didn't do what they were supposed to do, right? They want me to come into work every single day, do my job right every single day. And I'm not even going to get an attaboy, a pat on the back. And I don't want that. We, we really don't. We're, we're, we're not asking for a lot, we're not selfish people. I'm not expecting to come into work every day. Oh, thank you for coming to work. Thank you for doing your job. Just let me do my job. And let, me go to, let me go home the way I came in in one piece. And that day it didn't happen. And I still got lingering injuries that happened here to the, here and there. But you know what? We battle on. We truck on. We do what we got to do. And I think that's kind of like the theme for the, for the whole thing. We just want to be able to to keep on keeping on. And the way everything is right now, I mean, we barely got our heads above water now. Where do they expect? Where do they expect us to go after 30 years of that? I'm, I'm 13 years in, and I went in as the best shape of my life, mind you, as a professional athlete. 17 more years, I don't know what the residual effects of the job is going to have. So if I give you 30, you should be able to give me a pension.
2: Jesse, you were talking about loyalty, and Luigi, you're talking about working at a company for 30 years. But to do that, sometimes, even if you're able to do that. We have auto workers who are moving one, two, three, four—I don't even know how many times—because of these companies closing plants. And and I think you know it's more than just a plant; it's more than people just losing jobs. This is almost the closure, the the sort of devastation of entire communities. And I think it's something like sixty-five plant closures between these three companies in the past twenty years. What are you guys demanding with regard to this? What how does
1: this affect people? So when uh when a plant closes, like you, you touched on it perfectly, it, it devastates an entire community. But I mean, we don't gotta look any further back than Belvedere assembly, right? For us, for, for Chrysler. That plant kind of was responsible for the entire town in, in one way or another. Right? The the workers got their wages from the from the plant, from working at the plant. The city got some tax increase from Taxing the workers' paycheck, because remember they gave incentives to the corporation, right? So corporate welfare is cool, right when they want it. but notwithstanding the, the, that they got they got their wages from the company, then they go out and spend that money at a local diner at the grocery store, um, at the movie theater, take the kids out to the park to an event, and that money stays within the community and, and everyone thrives in one shape or another. If you look at um, the, the Great Recession right? The Bush recession that hit. When these plants were idled to one shift or to a skeleton crew, it's not really running as much. Everybody felt it. Everybody in Metro Detroit, because we're an automotive town, right? We're an automotive state. Everyone in Michigan felt it. It might have been a recession everywhere else, but we were going through a depression you know, here in the Metro Detroit area. And it had a ripple effect across the entire country. I think right around that time, people started realizing how important manufacturing was. And we started looking at the raw end of deals we were getting. And it was directly from the corporations, right? Because they're not going to just shut down a plant and cut their own throat and all of a sudden say, you know, this profitable product we have, we're just going to stop building it, we're done. No, what they do is they move it somewhere they can build it cheaper, right? And then you displace all those workers, whether it be you move it to a different state and have people trek halfway across the country, uproot their lives and their families and tell them, well, if you don't go to this plant here, you can just consider yourself terminated right, because we're getting a better tax incentive over here, or they're uprooting the entire plant and the product as they did in Belvedere in Illinois, and they're now building it in Mexico, right? Nothing against my Mexican automotive brothers and sisters over there. We're fighting for their wages as well, right? We want them brought to our standard of living as well, right? Because if we're making the same amount of money, now they can't us across the country, across the continent. It's one thing to whipsaw us internally amongst each other. It's another when you can do it across the border because of how laws are structured. And another thing I'd love to just touch on, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here, it, it moves to Mexico, and the price of that vehicle never went down not one penny. Actually, as a slap in the face to the American consumer, it went up. Why? Because the company has a built-in cost of living. They have their own version of cola. Move it somewhere else, charge a little more every single year. When we came in as tier twos, as temporary workers at half pay, okay, the price of that vehicle never went down. It kept going up and going up and going up and going up. It's the literal definition of, of runaway corporatism and corporate greed. It's just to maximize the profits and squeeze as much blood out of that rock as you can.
0: So I, I just want to talk to that a little bit too, because. I just want the listener to imagine themselves waking up tomorrow in Youngstown, Ohio, and hearing that Lordstown is closing down. You've given 30 years of loyalty to General Motors inside of Youngstown, Ohio, and you wake up and you hear this. You hear the Blazer, instead of going to Youngstown, is going to go to Mexico, and they're shutting down, or I'm sorry, because they get real creative with language. So they're going to unallocate your plant. Cause that doesn't mean we're, we're shutting it down. We're just going to unallocate it so that we're not legally liable for the repercussions of our actions. So we're going to unallocate the plant and all of those workers wake up and they find out they don't have a job tomorrow and they're like, okay, I have to follow my job. So they're left with the decision of leaving the only place that they've ever known and leaving their spouse and leaving their children possibly and uprooting their whole entire lives and the whole the whole life that they built, even though they always did the right thing, right? They, they graduated and they got a job and they were loyal to a company and they always did the right thing. And it didn't matter that they did the right thing. They have a decision to make of, do I move halfway across the country to keep my job and keep my pension and keep my health insurance and be able to provide for my family Or do I stay here and rot because there's nothing left in this community for me? So they say, I'm going to leave. I'm going to follow my job and I'm going to go to Missouri or I'm going to go to Arlington or I'm going to go to Detroit. So they're like, let me put my house on the market. Well, now their house just depreciated in value, $65,000 overnight because everybody else just put their house on the market too, because everybody else has to follow their job. And it just decimates entire communities. I know for Youngstown, there was even like talks about closing the public school system because there was going to be no more tax dollars to be able to provide the public school system inside of that community because General Motors made a decision on an executive board to allocate the blazer strictly to Mexico where they could exploit the workers instead of to Youngstown where they had legacy costs. And when we say legacy costs, we're talking about just the cost of a worker. So one of our demands is that we can strike over plant closures. And that's completely correct. We need the ability to strike over plant closures because there's been 65 plant closures amongst the big three. And those are 65 communities that have been destroyed by a simple decision and an executive board to stay competitive and to make Wall Street happy.
1: Yeah, I mean, where else would it make sense that someone can tell you I'm going to take something away from you, but you're going to keep building it until we're ready to transition it out of here? No, you're going to take it away. Guess what? I'm going to make it hurt. I'm going to withhold my labor because you can't force me to work. Give me the ability to withhold my labor from that company so they can't keep sucking the well dry. Because at some point, it's the snake eating its own tail. This is going to kill us all eventually at some point, right? Who the hell is going to keep buying this stuff when there's no more money to buy it? I mean, the auto industry was created by the workforce, right? They paid them enough money to be able to afford the product they bought.
2: And one of the ways that they, one of the methods through which they they sort of gouge their prices and keep up their profits is by hiring temps, temporary workers. And this is, this brings us to, I think, Another really key demand, and Jesse, I know you were a temp. Can you share what that was like, and and what you guys are trying to do with regard to temps?
0: Yeah, so that that brings us to a, another one of our members' demands, and that's to end the abuse of temp workers. So I was a temporary employee for three years. I equate that to like literal hell on earth. Uh, the three years that I spent as a temporary employee was the most miserable three years that I've ever spent as a working person inside of America. So one of the reasons why I say it was so bad was because you had absolutely no path or no means to an end of when that was going to end for you, or when you would achieve the goal of no longer being a temporary employee. And it was just abundantly clear and abundantly understood and accepted that you were an exploited worker, for the benefits of the people next to you. One of the hardest things about being a temp worker was that you were only allowed three days of time off for the whole entire year. And that was three unpaid days of time off. And so I was a temp for three years. One of the years that I was a temporary employee, I had the unfortunate circumstance of my grandmother and my aunt dying in the same year. And when my grandmother died, I took a day off for her visitation and I took a day off for her funeral because you do not have the protections as a regular employee of having bereavement time. So that counted as two days out of my three days, I was allowed off for the whole entire year. Three weeks later, my my aunt died, unfortunately. And I remember I went to my boss and I explained my situation. I said, you know, I know I just took these days off, but I, I gave you a death certificate. I gave you an obituary. You know, my grandma died. Unfortunately, my aunt has died now too. And I, I would really like to be able to take her viewing off and her funeral off. And he said, no, you can only choose one of those days. You You know, you're a temporary employee. You can only choose one of those days. So I said, okay. So I took the funeral off because for me, it felt more important than the viewing. But I remember being at work that day and I'm welding pre-production vehicles and I'm just so upset. I was just so angry. I'm thinking, you know, like I came in here for the last three years, every single day for the last three years. And I've sacrificed that time with my family and I've sacrificed that time with my son And they won't even say, okay, you had a death in your family and you've given the proof and you've given the records to prove this. And you can't even take that time off. And um, that was so frustrating. And I I still made it through. And I said, okay, it's going to be worth it because maybe it ends up with a full time position. And I remember six months later, I got influenza B. And um, we were still in the same calendar year. So now I have influenza B and I call my same supervisor and I say to him, I have influenza B and I just went to the emergency room and I'm, I'm very sick and I'll bring you all of my documentation to prove that I have influenza B, but I don't know if it's good for me to come into work and give everybody else influenza B. And he said, no, you're a temporary worker. We've already had this discussion. You have to come to work. So I remember I I pulled up a trash can next to a pre-production vehicle and I'm spot welding a car and as i'm spot welding the car every couple of welds i have to throw up into a trash can and i had to do this because if i didn't i was going to lose my job and i was going to lose the opportunity that i just spent three years trying to achieve and for me it worked out okay because for me i went to an apprenticeship and i don't even want to say okay i just want to say it's semi worked out i was given an opportunity to have a job where i can live paycheck to paycheck For the other 400 temps that I was with, that resulted in all of them being laid off overnight one day, all 400 of them walked into a room on a Monday one day after I got my apprenticeship and they just said, sorry, we don't need your services anymore. And after some of them, five, six years of being a temporary employee and spending 40 to 60 hours dedicating their lives and showing loyalty to a corporation just to get an opportunity got walked off of the job site. And I'll always remember that day because although I was spared, most of my friends were not. And they walked them out to their car and they wouldn't even let them say goodbye to their union brothers and sisters. And that's the type of things that we're fighting for. It's disgusting. And those are the types of things that made General Motors record-breaking profits that no one talks about.
2: Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's unbelievable that someone could be classified as a temporary worker. And work years, and I know that you know one of the demands uh, that some people are calling for is to just hire the temps, all the temps right now, and perhaps you know if you work ninety days as a temp, that's that's the cutoff you get hired as a permanent worker. One last demand that I really want to cover because I think it's super important and very important, not just for auto workers, but as a precedent for the rest of the working class and other unions is a 32 hour work week at 40 hours pay. This is something that the UAW called for in the 1930s. Why is this so central?
1: I mean, to people who think that a 32 hour work week is crazy. I mean, it was crazy to talk about a 40 hour work week. At what point do we, do we, Categorize what isn't, isn't insane. You know, at, at the time when they came up with the 40 hour work week, it was eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, right? Because we got to sleep, and eight hours to do whatever the hell you want. And I think everyone's earned that just as a human being. I mean, what's so bad about doing what I want to do for eight hours, right? We were all so quick to and excited to grow up and become adults so we could do what we wanted to do, right? And then we had to get jobs, and we were like, "Oh, I can't do what I want to do. I got to do what they want me to do." So, what's wrong with negotiating the amount of time that I'm going to spend you telling me what I have to do, right? Because it's a necessary evil. We all got to work, right? And anyone who thinks that auto workers just work in a 40-hour work week have never stepped foot inside of a plant. That's just—you got some places that'll have 40-hour here and there. That's not the case. We're we're not working 40 hours. What's wrong with doing better?
0: I want to talk a little bit about the 32-hour work week, too. We live in a society where technology has disproportionately only advantaged the rich. Over and over and over again, we see that technology has benefited them and the 1% and never benefited us. So we have to worry about our jobs and we have to, to worry about being laid off because we have AIs or we have virtual reality or we have technology that has overtaken the jobs that we live. And who gets rich off of that? But the CEOs, but the but these huge corporations and never us. We, we don't get to reap in the benefits of technology growing as a society. We just watch everybody else reap in it. So we eventually have to come to a terms where a 32 hour work week is the norm, because if we don't, we can't keep everybody gainfully employed. We know as a society, because of global warming, we have to transition into EVs. We know this. Maybe EVs isn't the ultimate answer, but it is the answer today. But unfortunately, when we're talking about the transition into EVs, we're also talking about losing 40% of the components that it takes to make an internal combustion engine to an EV, which means that the people that make those components, their jobs cease to exist. And we should celebrate that as a society, right? We should celebrate that. We should say, wow, look at us. Like we've realized this, this huge problem that we have in society. And we've come together collectively to find a way to, to remedy this situation. And that's through electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engines. That's going to help with global warming. And it's going to help with this, you know, green initiative that we have going But we don't look at it that way. The companies, they take it and they use it as a mask to be able to exploit workers more. And they take the technology and they take the advancements that we have and they use it as a means to undercut the worker and just make more money. And so all of us together should say, wow, it takes 40% less components. Let's go down to a 32-hour work week. Let's spend more time with our families. Let's have a better work-life balance. Let's be able to be there for the children and be there for the next generation and do all of these things. But instead, they're saying, we're going to lay you all off and we're going to make more money on the fact that we're dealing with this crisis inside of society. And that's problematic.
2: I'm so glad you brought in the EVs because that's exactly where I was going to go next from... My last question, which is to talk about the stakes for the greater auto industry, which is in, in change, right? We are seeing a change in this country's manufacturing makeup, massive investment spurred by government legislation, all being sort of funneled into this green transition. But it doesn't really seem like it's very much a just transition, as as unions and other labor advocates would hope it to be. And the UAW has kind of taken up the mantle of trying to push for equity across the industry as the EV industry ramps up. We just saw an interim wage agreement at the GM battery factory in Lordstown at Ultium cells, where... You know, folks got around like four dollar wage increases. I believe two to four dollar wage increases, but the leadership framed it as really just the start, because the goal would be to bring these jobs up to the standards of the regular combustion engine jobs, which themselves, right, the UAW is is trying to improve. So I just wanted to maybe give you guys a, sh- a chance to talk about the stakes for the industry and what's going on at these new jobs at EV factories.
1: To me, the biggest BS I heard with the whole electrification thing is that, well, oh, you know, we have to pay less because less components and it's, it's a battery now that's operating the vehicle. This disillusion, this, this narrative that they're trying to paint with, with, you know, oh, it's an easier job. It's less components. It's going to require less people. But at the end of the day, we're circling back to what I said, right? Full circle. They're paying less and still going to charge more. Go look at a, at a, at a, at a mine in the Congo. And you tell me, That it's fair what they're doing over there to get the product that they need for their EV, the lithium. Go look at a lithium mine. Go look at a cobalt mine. Find out what they're paying those people, right, if anything at all. They're paying rock, absolute rock bottom prices for this technology. And yet you're going to sit there and charge more? I don't know what kind of people they got writing their script, but it is absolute fiction and it is absolute fantasy.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about Altium's interim deal. I'm glad for them. I think that I agree with Sean Fain when he says it's just a start, but taking a sixteen sixty-five dollar an hour job and turning it into a nineteen sixty-five dollar an hour job is is not the answer. It's not the means to the end. It's not a win. It's better than it was, but it's not a win. And that's why I'm really glad that he said it's an interim deal. And he's not even patting himself on the back or anybody else on the back. He's saying This is just what they were owed so far. And this is just the start to even begin to talk because that's correct. Those people deserve so much more because they are the future and because they are going to take our society in a positive way. And they're going to, they're going to secure our future in ways that really matter for our next generations and saving this planet. And we owe them so much more than like, a wage that will literally put you on government assistance. It's it's sad. It's sad that General Motors did that. But to to just like build upon Luigi's point, these are propulsion jobs. It doesn't matter what source that General Motors is using to propel a vehicle. It's just propulsion jobs. And so if we have already won inside of negotiation tables, from decades to decades to decades, that this is the standard of living for a job that creates a propulsion system for a vehicle. Why are we going back on that? Why do we have to re things that we've already won? They're just using it as a means to exploit more workers and to get more and to, to make more record-breaking profits. And that's what it all ends up being inside of America is that in order to sustain a competitive market, in order to do better than you did the quarter before. You have to take from somewhere. You have to. And so what they're doing is they're constantly taking from the bottom. And that's why we're living in a society that that gap is growing. And the 1% is getting smaller, and we're getting larger, and we're we're dying.
2: We covered so much ground. Thank you guys so much for doing this with me i have to ask you though in a last lightning round because i know a lot of people are wondering this are you guys going to go on strike you think come september 14th
1: we need to do what we need to do
0: we're going to do what we need to do
2: <laughs> well we'll see what you guys do jesse kelly and luigi Jokai, thanks for joining me on the upsurge
0: thank you so much for having us
1: thanks for having us You just
2: listened to episode 14 of The Upsurge. Special thanks to Luigi Jokai, Danny Morales, and assembly line worker and UAW Local 22 member Chris Viola for contributing audio clips to this episode. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times and The Real News Network. Both are nonprofit media organizations that cover the labor movement closely. Check them out at InTheseTimes.com and TheRealNews.com where you can also find an archive of all our past episodes. You can also show your support by sharing the episode on social media, giving us a five-star rating and writing a review. Follow us on Twitter at upsurgepod and Facebook The Upsurge. You can also listen to us on our YouTube channel, The Upsurge. But the best way to show your support is by becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com/upsurgepod. We are listener supported and can't continue without you. You can find a link in the description. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters. We could not do this without you, but if a very special thank you and shout out to our patrons at the business agent tier or higher. Shane Lynch, Greg Kerwood, Emil McDonald, Steve Dumont, Jason Cohn, Jason Mendez, Richard Hooker, Tony Winters, David Allen, Tim Peppers, Dan Arlen, Dimitri Legas, Randy Ostro, Mac Hardin, Timothy Krueger, Nicole Halliday, Dee Bo, Ed Laskowski, Chris Schleiger, Corey Levesque, Martin Labutt, Matt Cooper, Marlon Russo, Martin Omasta, Dennis Hazley, Enzo N, probably Fang, Andy Grout, and Audrey Topping. All of your support means so much. The podcast was edited by myself, it was produced by NYGP, music is by Casey Gallagher, the cover art was done by Devlin Cara Resitar, i Teddy Astro, thanks for listening and catch you next time.